2021 has been a big year for ag tech. Today, we sit down with four venture capitalists to understand what's driving all the excitement from investors. When we look at the variables that are in place in ag right now, they seem to be very similar to the ones that were in place when the consumer fintech initial wave exploded. Technology areas outside of ag, like fintech and freight tech and climate tech, are all hot, and investors see opportunities to apply them to the ag industry. Supply chain is the crisis right now, it's in the news. We should expect more venture capital to flow into that category now, just like happened in FinTech. Today's guests represent four different countries, each with their own nuances of ag problems and solutions. The first wave of carbon interventions in India will happen off the backs of full stack farmer platforms, as opposed to standalone carbon bets. Each of these investors will share how they're looking at these trends and some predictions of what may be to come. We've got food companies that otherwise used to just run like a small pilot off here to the side and instead are having to roll out large-scale sensor networks to collect this data and actually pay for the adoption of that technology because they're the ones that need the information. We've got some insights for you from our AgTech Venture Capital Roundtable on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for today's Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week I get to sit down with the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors that are shaping the future of the ag industry. Last month for the FOA community, I gathered a roundtable of four ag tech venture capitalists, each of whom happened to also be very popular previous guests of this show, to talk about what they're seeing in ag tech investment in 2021 and to speculate a little bit about where things might go from here. What resulted was a great conversation talking about areas of technology that are making their way into agriculture and how this makes them sort of feel like suddenly part of the popular kids, quote unquote, or the cool kids of the venture community. The four voices you're about to hear are from Mark Khan of Omnivore in India, Sarah Nolette from Tenacious Ventures in Australia, Jeanette Barnard with Merck Animal Health Ventures here in the U.S., and Francisco Hardim of SP Ventures in Brazil. I'm going to link to each of their websites and the previous episodes where you can hear their background in the show notes here. Venture capitalists or VCs can sometimes get a reputation as being a group that sort of all gets together and has the same ideas and throws a bunch of money at problems via startup investments in hopes of making a bunch of money for them and their backers when they sell the company for a bunch of money. And, you know, that may be true on some cynical level on the surface, but I will tell you that these four individuals on the show today each care as deeply as anyone about the future of agriculture and the success of the stakeholders involved, which is specifically why I wanted them on today's show. Mark Kahn and his colleagues at Omnivore in India have really been leading the way for a long time when it comes to evaluating not only financial returns in ag tech, but also the impact their investments are making especially on farmer customers. We think about impact as it kind of flows through four pillars of our theory of change, which is smallholder profitability, smallholder resilience, agricultural sustainability, and climate action. And then we have submetrics for all of those things. But probably the biggest thing that we look at is this notion of kind of economic value creation in agriculture, right? You need to think about every farmer as essentially being what they are, which is you know a small business person. More micro in India, larger size in, in the US and sometimes huge in Brazil, but ultimately all of these folks have an income statement and a balance sheet that drives their lives. 
And so we try to think about the interventions that we're investing in and how that flows through the aggregated income statements of all of the farmers they've reached. So you may see something increasing, you know, the sales realization of a farmer by 3%. The same platform is reducing their cost of inputs by 10%. It's lowering their interest cost by 2%. And we aggregate all of that in this notion of addition, economic value creation in agriculture so that what we have, A, we can compare apples, you know, to different portfolio companies and see what that looks like. And B, so that we can aggregate across our entire portfolio and say, hey, look, look what these guys did. When Sarah Nolette and her team formed Tenacious Ventures based out of Australia, they also thought a lot about not only the returns that were possible, but the impact they wanted to make. Their background and connection to ag tech customers really comes in handy when evaluating how they're doing in this area and how to measure commercial successes along the way. A is impact like baked into their DNA is what we called it, as in as they grow more commercially, they're also going to have more impact without unintended consequences. That's really hard to know at the seed stage, but we do work to figure out, is that true? Is it true in the founder's beliefs and motivations? Is it true in the business model? And we measure that along the way. In terms of commercial success, we try to think about leading indicators. Often revenue can be a lagging indicator. And so in our diligence process, and as we work with these companies, we do a lot of like, hey, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, if we took this away... What would that mean to you? And understanding, you know, like what would the impacts of that be? And also kind of characterizing the customer's investment into the technology, not just from a financial perspective, but if we're talking about, for example, automation in a farming context, like if the farmer is planting new dwarfing varieties because the future of the orchard is going to be autonomy ready, like that's a serious commitment and investment into the future of, of that company. And so that kind of leading indicator of like usage or engagement with the product is something that gets us excited. Of course, all the traditional metrics also apply in terms of revenue, you know, growth, future raises, capital efficiency, margin, et cetera, et cetera. But I think some nuances in ag and in deep tech where revenue might actually not be the best indicator because deploying more devices before they're ready to be deployed is actually going to be worse, not better. And so getting into like, what are the leading indicators of traction that we need to see? For Jeanette Barnard, she's coming at venture capital from a little different perspective as part of Merck Animal Health Ventures, which is a corporate venture capital or CVC group. This means that they're still looking at commercial returns just like everybody else, but through the lens of the overarching Merck strategy. It's actually really different. So first of all, I would say there's probably more similarity in how traditional VCs think about those metrics, there's just a lot more variation on the CVC side, right? Because there can be a wide range in how CVCs think about what their reason for existence is and therefore what the metrics are for success. I would say this, Merck Animal Health Ventures is still a relatively new team. It's a few years old. So we're still figuring out a lot as we go, but we like to think of ourselves as a strategic investor where we're adding value to the startups that we invest in, where they are somehow going to be better off by working with Merck, whether that's from a scale perspective, from a specific capability that we have. We always tend to do collaboration projects with the startups that we invest in. So some sort of a project where we're saying, you know, how can we add value to those companies? And so for us, we're really looking at it from the perspective of looking for early stage technologies that are going to either somehow complement the core existing business or solve an unmet customer need where Merck Animal Health should be playing, right? So that's really that focus on unmet customer needs is a very big concept for us. So you just heard from Jeanette Barnard, as well as Sarah Nolette and Mark Kahn. Our fourth panelist and the fourth voice you'll hear from here today is Francisco Hardim of SP Ventures. 
He says he was inspired by the work Omnivore has been doing in India and has sort of adapted their philosophy and approach for his geography, Latin America. One of the perceptions of ag in that area, particularly in Brazil, has been the rise of very large farming companies. Although Francisco says that's not necessarily a defining characteristic anymore, thanks in part to technology coming up to help more mid-sized farmers remain viable. Well, so we, we have the very big whales, right? Like SLC, which is already over 600,000 hectares. We have both Turu and, and these guys. But these guys are the anomalies, I would say, nowadays. Uh, they're, they're publicly listed. They're very efficient. But I think they're not the trend. They used to be unstoppable, at least it appeared until 10, 15 years ago, where it appeared that if you were not big in ag, but I mean very big, over 50, 100,000 hectares in our region, you would not have access to capital, access to uh, lack of intermediaries, so access to markets uh, without having to leave too much margin on the way, scale to command your own logistics prices, to own infrastructure, which in Brazil is, is important for logistics, whether it's port, whether it's rail, whether it's highways, a lot of the big trading companies do. So there was a very important move towards economies of scale and consolidation until maybe 10, 15 years ago. I think a lot of the technologies have been lowering these barriers and promoting a competitiveness for, I won't say small farmers. So the small guys who have up to 50, 40 hectares, these guys are on the label that we call vulnerable. These are not the, the safe, let's say, boats as of yet. But the guys who have between 500 and 10,000 hectares, which is a very big constituency of growers, these guys now with digital technologies, with access to e-commerce and marketplace platforms, and especially with fintech for ag, which have exploded over the past two years, these guys have access to a reasonable capital. These guys can sell their produce to three uh, intermediaries down the line than it used to be 10 years ago. And these guys have access to pretty efficient logistics. So they are balancing the game up. So I think the pressure for consolidation has pretty much been, let's say, reduced at least. Thanks in, in a great regard to digitalization and technology. Okay, so Francisco opened the door there for the first of the influences or drivers that we will specifically address on today's show, which is fintech for ag. It seemed to be a consensus among everyone at the roundtable that fintech was likely to be a major opportunity, not just this year, but also moving forward. In fact, Francisco said fintech is the most heavily concentrated area of ag in his portfolio, with five or six companies all approaching the space in different ways. Fintech, though, just like ag tech, can sort of be a catch-all term and sometimes a little bit tricky to precisely define. So when I say fintech for ag, we're saying companies that can originate, distribute, service, financial services for the farming agribusiness value chain in a more efficient way than the current incumbents. So this can be credit, this can be payment, which would be barter, this can be insurance, or a whole host of different uh, financial services, just hedging, effects that are necessitated by growers. Uh, right now, the major race that is being fought in our geography is credit. So it's a $100 billion plus market and growing and should be much bigger. And I believe that it will be much bigger with the shock of technology and efficiency that we're having it right now. And when we look at the variables that are in place in ag right now, they seem to be very similar to the ones that were in place when the retail fintech, when the consumer fintech initial wave exploded. The regulatory changes from the central bank, from the Brazilian version of the SEC, from Congress, et cetera. So a lot of regulatory changes making digital credit in ag something much more available and widespread. Interest rates were quite low, so stimulated a lot of allocation of capital towards new operations such as fintech for ag. 
Third, a digitalization of ag. So for you to build exponential digital business, you need to have the infrastructure in place. We didn't have the connectivity, the smartphone penetration, or the digital literacy in farming that you had in consumer ecosystems when it first exploded. So I think we're in a moment of ag fintech in our region where we're building a new financial services industry for ag. And if you look at Latin America 10 years ago, and you would see the 10 most valuable companies in Latin America, they would basically be split three ways. There would be mining, telecom, and financial services. So biting this financial services value, wealth for tech and for ag, it's a pretty big bite. I'm very confident we're going to have at least three to five big companies in the next five to 10 years in the fintech space. Again, first wave, credit. Second wave, in my opinion, will be insurance. We have lower insurance penetration in Brazil in the ag space that we have in Argentina, which is insane. We shouldn't be behind the Argentinians in anything. But when you compare it to a more mature market like the US, it's, it's radical. So that's definitely going to be a big growth avenue. Well, if fintech is referring to technology for financial services, and we've already seen a massive wave of fintech outside of ag, why do we necessarily need ag-specific fintech? I mean, it seems like ag has this tendency to try to take anything that's working outside of ag and just add the word ag in front of it. But is that necessary or is it just redundant? Well, Sarah and Jeanette both see it as very necessary in a lot of cases. Yeah, I would say it depends on like where in the stack you want to play. And I know Jet's looking at this right now, so I'll be short here. But there's certain areas like we don't need an ag specific payments platform in particular, like there's existing ones to be used. So but there are areas where if you think about trade finance, like existing workflow software isn't going to work for ag because you're talking about workflows that only exist in agricultural markets. And so it would make sense that you need those kinds of tools to be custom for ag and what kind of data is flowing and what kind of capital might need to flow in and the kind of transparency that kind of capital would need, et cetera, et cetera, seems to us like you'd need ag specific solutions there. Yeah, I would just add on to that. If you think about like the tech stack for a fintech company, so the payments example, right? An ag-focused company wouldn't need to build that out, but they can use that layer. And there are more, let's just say, more depth in the tech stack than an ag-tech-focused fintech can access from other companies without needing to build themselves. So I think that's a reason that we should expect to see more fintech companies. But to your question, Tim, I don't know that it's any different than SaaS-type products, right? Like There are big SaaS companies that are targeting all markets, but yet we still see hyper-verticalization in certain categories of SaaS. So I think it's a similar type thing, right? When you're talking about like solving the specific problem for the farmer or for the producer or whomever in the supply chain, that's what creates the opportunities. SaaS, for a quick jargon clarification, is software as a service. So really just any software that you would pay a subscription for periodically, usually like monthly or annually. Jeanette sees a connection here as well to another technology area that's exciting for the future of ag tech, or at least has some crossover, and that's freight and logistics technology or freight tech. So I had a conversation recently with a guy from really the freight tech space, and he compared you know, hey, supply chain is the crisis right now. It's in the news. We should expect more venture capital to flow into that category now, just like happened in fintech. And so if you think about the history of the amount of capital that flowed into fintech type companies after the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, then you know, it kind of had a slow start. But then a few years ago, you started to see more of those companies IPO, which led to more capital flowing into the category. And I think now we're at that point of a lot of it was originally consumer facing. We've seen more, more and more of that come into B2B type context. And so now it's coming to ag and there's a lot more on the crop side that's just starting to filter over to the livestock side. 
To me, a really interesting dynamic though is in mature markets, let's say the US, since this happens to be where I'm based, but the federal government plays a really interesting role in these markets. And so that both creates some challenges for fintech companies, but I think it also creates some, some really specific opportunities. So I think the nature of these fintech companies is going to look really different, whether it's a company working in North America, working in Europe, or focusing on India or Brazil, for example. I just think they're going to be solving very different problems, and at least in their early products. So whatever the wedge product is that they use to get into that market, I think those are going to look really different market by market, depending on how developed it is. This point Jeanette's making about the role government plays in these areas of technology, I think is extremely important, whether we're talking about fintech or freight tech or climate tech, which we're about to get into. In Brazil, Francisco says he's seen many examples of unintended consequences from too much government interference. Whenever the government tries to do something, and I, I, I do believe there's good intention, they usually cause a lot more problems than they do. So now going on to the ag credit market, what has been the case until two, three years ago? And I didn't mention this in the, in the perfect storm comparison. They've always subsidized agricultural credit. Now, what happens when the government subsidizes agricultural credit in Brazil? What happens is they use the Banco do Brasil structure to offer the subsidized loans. What happens is the teams that's at Banco do Brasil, they don't offer the subsidized loans to the worst farmers or to the farmers that are truly vulnerable and need it. They offer it to the best farmers. So what happens is the subsidies go to the people really that need the capital who get lower interest rates. So, so you end up having a transfer program of wealth from the general population to the wealthy farmers. And you kill the private sector's ability to develop its own private credit market for farmers. So what, what happened was the government generated a complete dependency on its subsidies, and its subsidies became a wealth transfer program through the population to wealthy farmers. Uh, and, and, and this was the truth for decades. The good note is that uh, the government has finally gone belly up bankrupt. They're already over there. And then with COVID, just exploited 20 to 30% more of the budget. So it's not an option for the government to be able to tax and subsidize wealthy farmers anymore. So subsidies have been falling for farmers. And what's happened was that the private lenders, private credit has picked up the slack that they've been seeking a new place to allocate their resources. And they see farming as being a very healthy post-COVID sector because balance sheets are healthy, dollar-denominated revenues, so the sector is, is thriving. So now we're seeing the birth of this private market. And every time the government tries to support or help, unfortunately, they cause more problems or at least new problems than you had. So we're always scared when we see the government trying to support or help something in our region. And remember, it's not even about the inefficiency of doing it and having corruption. It's worse than that. It's really causing unintended damages that are far outweighing the benefits that they try to resolve. So in ag, it's been a, a traditional. And, and I'll, I'll tell you one more. I think one of the reasons why Brazilian agribusiness is so globally competitive is exactly because it's been a sector that the government has meddled less than the other sectors. So it's a sector that's been more exposed to international competition without relying on these subsidies and has been forced to become competitive. Most of the other sectors that have been receiving overwhelming subsidies, unfortunately, are going to be forever dependent on this kind of support. So we need to get our public policies a little bit better in our region to be able to solve these market failures without generating huge distortions that cause a lot more damage. Those of you who are regular listeners will know that historically, I try to kind of steer clear of going into policy too much because number one, it's really complicated and different in every country. And number two, I know so little about it, relatively speaking. But we can't ignore how significant the role of policy is going to be in these areas, especially in this next one we're going to talk about, climate. If there's one area that's been even bigger than fintech in 2021, arguably it's been investments in climate technology. 
It feels like all the startup pitches overnight went from we're going to feed the world to we're going to fix climate change. And Sarah gives a great overview of how Tenacious is looking at investment opportunities in this area. The way we divide it up, and maybe this is helpful for people kind of coming into this space, would be there's like the practice change element and the on-farm piece of like either managing the farm data or changing practices from current practices to practices that would generate more ecosystem services credits, whether that's cover cropping or no-till or whatever it might be. So there's that like practice change element. For us, that feels not very venture investable. Like all the behavior change elements that we've talked about seem particularly tough, absolutely needed from an ag perspective, but feels tough for investors. Then you get into sort of the marketplaces and the incentives, like what is actually driving the behavior change and how is the data flowing and how are those incentives being created? We think that that space is really interesting. And so Nori would fall into that marketplace category. Then you've got to actually validate that when you have an incentive and you have behavior change and you have data flowing, that the practice you wanted to incentivize and the outcome you wanted to create actually happens. And that would be the measurement reporting and verification space or MRV. Another space that we believe is incredibly susceptible to technology entering and and playing a role in particular, because of what I said before, like it is not economically viable to go out and directly measure in cases like we don't buy car insurance based on like you, Tim, as an owner and your specific car, we buy it in the aggregate. And so why would we think that carbon would be any different? And so we we see that as high potential and, and have invested in regrow there. And then you get into the kind of investor management and audit and data requirements that will increasingly come in as players are coming in from outside agriculture or inside agriculture and need to like manage all these requirements, manage the audit, manage the data flow, manage the certification workflows. And that's another space where we think that having it be digitally native and managing those workflows with software is going to make a ton of sense. So not all of those spaces are, we think, venture investable. We don't know yet who the winners will be, but we're bullish for a number of reasons in a couple of those areas. Sarah mentioned Nori, which Tenacious is an investor in, and we featured on this show clear back in episode 110. A lot of the buzz around this area of ecosystem services and climate tech as it relates to ag has been about paying individual farmers for their practices on their farm that sequester carbon using a platform like Nori. However, Mark explains that the models for climate technology in ag might need to look a little bit different in a place like India. Because our average farmer is small and poor and fragmented, it's hard to do this standalone. It's hard to build a standalone business in this, or at least that's how we've seen it so far, right? If you're in the Cerrado and you're going to farmers that have 20,000 hectares, you can actually do outreach and those contracts that you're winning are big enough that there's some substance there and you can build a business around that. It's very, very hard to build a carbon business in India when you're trying to go farmer by farmer and the average person has two acres or five acres. And so our current hypothesis is that the first wave of carbon interventions in India will happen off the backs of full stack farmer platforms like Dehat or digital first farmer platforms like Bharat Agri, as opposed to standalone carbon bets, whether they're MRV or intervention or the like. 
And I think that's actually where we'll see really interesting shifts like bundling of carbon or sustainability outcomes with inputs because input companies need to now play in this space and offer solutions or want to capture part of the stack here. Or we've got food companies that otherwise used to just run like a small pilot off here to the side with some sustainability thing that they could put in their marketing and instead are having to roll out large scale sensor networks to collect this data and actually pay for the adoption of that technology because they're the ones that need the information. So the farmers actually aren't incurring the cost and they're getting all the co-benefits of increasing soil health or water absorption or whatever it might be. So that's what's different, we think, today or in the future. And just to jump back to Nori here real quick, because it's a great segue into the next part of our conversation, they're also a marketplace for carbon. In the past few years, many of these marketplaces have popped up, not only for carbon, as is the case for Nori and several others, but also in grain and inputs and a variety of other things in agriculture. And many have not worked out. Either the business has failed or they've pivoted onto other things because it just never gained traction. And Sarah brings up an interesting point to consider about these marketplaces that you need to look at the ones that consider a lot of physical logistics, which is a lot of ag, versus those that are more digitally native. In terms of marketplaces, like it's a great business model, right? And it's it's really important in terms of how software has made advancements into different industries in agriculture, the retail channel has made it really challenging to have digital marketplaces because we have like bulk things that need to move around. And a lot of the reasons the infrastructure was built was to manage the physical movement of these goods. So while you can move some of the transaction online and we're increasingly seeing that there's still need for physical movement. I think where we're seeing changes there is when things move more digitally. So um, whether that's sending a much smaller amount of an input and you can send it via a package or whether that's you know different elements of the transaction moving digitally instead of physically can you do more of this via satellite, et cetera? And I think that a little bit leads us to Nori. So when we think about carbon, we see this really nice intersection of physical agriculture and what we would call like digitally native agriculture, digitally native farming, where you can do much more through remote sensing, through indirect measurements, through modeling, and so actually overcome some of the infrastructure challenges that have been big constraints in the past. And especially with ecosystem services, the world where we're going to need to go out and like dig soil cores and measure, you know, each hectare or whatever, it just it doesn't make sense from a carbon market perspective. It definitely makes sense from a soil management perspective, from an input management perspective for co-benefits, but it just doesn't make sense. And so we can break some of the trade-offs and move into this digital world in a way that I think other areas of ag have struggled because of the need to like physically move things around. For Jeanette, she actually has experience in starting one of these marketplaces herself. Years before joining Merck, she was the founder of the Poultry Exchange. She says it's tempting for entrepreneurs to see market inefficiencies and jump to the conclusion that an online marketplace must be what is needed. But that's not necessarily what the market always wants. Marketplaces are kind of an easy, obvious answer, right? Like an entrepreneur comes into a market and says like, oh, price discovery is a challenge here. And oh, everyone's not, you know, maximizing every transaction and well, these people, they're picking up the phone and calling each other and that seems inefficient. Let's introduce a marketplace. And sometimes that's a good answer and oftentimes it's not. And I mean, just in general, I think the non-obvious solutions tend to be the ones that stick around and are meaningful. Again, I'm saying this as someone who had that thought process, who said, here is an inefficient market. Here are some problems I've identified from a market efficiency standpoint around price discovery, as well as from like the operational aspect. Let's introduce a marketplace. 
was not the right answer, right? It definitively was not the right answer. So I think that's just kind of an element of that. But then if you look at examples of like dairy.com is a really interesting example of they started when multiple dairy processors came together and said, we need a way to easily trade and easily get some of these secondary type products in front of buyers built out a marketplace. Then they've transformed that business to now, you know, continue increasing and increasing value that they're creating for their customers by building out a whole suite of supply chain software solutions. And so the marketplace in and of itself I don't think is typically going to be a way to capture enough value over time, right? I think those margins are going to be pressured and compressed. But the question is like, what is the roadmap? What are the potential adjacencies that you can build around the marketplace? That's where potentially there are some pockets where that makes sense from a venture perspective. Mark's point of view on this in India is quite a bit different. He says many markets there don't have the transparency of the buyers and sellers in places like North America. And there's a level of scale and fragmentation that creates real opportunities to add value with marketplaces that might not work in other countries. I think the reality is that India is just far more opaque. Like it's hard for people to understand this, but you go to a small village in India and a small village in India has 20,000 people. My neighborhood in Bombay has 300,000 people. The city of Bombay, Mumbai, has about 30 million people. A small city in India has 4 million people. There's a different scale and there's a different level of complexity. And in general, I think you've got more players to make a marketplace or a platform work. Like when I think about the current star of our portfolio is this company called Dehop that just raised a, a kind of a mega series C. And, you know, they're approaching a million farmers on the platform and they want to get to three, five, 10 million farmers. By the way, India has like 130 million farmers. It's a lot of people. And so I think it's just very different than the kind of story in the US where you have radically different numbers, radically different levels of sophistication, radically different size of farms, you know, Another article that I cite all the time was Shubang Shankar writing about the kind of the mediocrity of agritech in the 2010s. And his point was, you're taking the world's most efficient producers, and it's hard to make them much more efficient than they are. That's just not the case in the markets where we're playing or in sub-Saharan Africa or in Indonesia or other places that are smallholder dominated. I think it's worth noting here that this concept we're talking about, this disintermediation of the ag value chain through marketplaces, it's not just a 2021 phenomenon. I mean, carbon may be the next wave of this, uh, but I did want to share points like Mark's and Sarah's because they're worth noting to show that there's still opportunity here, even though we've been talking about this in ag tech for several years now. All right, so we've captured some interesting themes so far on the show that were a big part of ag tech in 2021. Fintech, supply chain, carbon, and then this conversation just now about marketplaces. Before we close out today's episode, I wanted to give each of our roundtable participants a chance to look ahead and give some predictions for 2022 and beyond. Now, I will say they didn't want to specifically predict the future, which I don't blame them, but they shared some insights that I think are worth considering here as we head into the new year, starting with Francisco who said that really before COVID, much of the ag tech was starting to feel like maybe it was being pushed a little bit too early. But now, with the acceleration of digitization through the pandemic, it's making ag tech one of the hottest areas out there for investment. 
there's an old cliche phrase in our industry, which is being early and being wrong is the same thing. It's all about, we were definitely wrong in a lot of our investments uh, until March, 2020. We were, let's say, offered a second and third chance in many of our investments because of COVID as things accelerated, as digitalization accelerated. And the speed of the inertia of the acceleration, I mean, when I look at 2022, I only see these things going, you know, clear blue skies above, whether it's carbon, whether it's fintech, whether it's marketplace, whether it's digitalization inside the farm place, whether it's uh, digitalization of the logistics challenges. I mean, when we started the business way back when, this was an exotic boutique, you know, asset class, marginalized asset class. I feel like 2020, I started to become a popular kid on the block. In 2021, we, we became one of the most popular kids in high school. So it's an exciting time to be. I mean, uh, from now on, uh, it's, it's all downhill. Of course, Francisco's being somewhat tongue in cheek there with that last comment, but all agree the sector is feeling really just red hot right now. Sarah says this exuberance for ag tech is at least in part being driven by the factors we talked about here on this episode. But at some point, all this exuberance and excitement and all these investments will hopefully lead to more substantial exits. Yeah. So I think 2022, more capital. We are seeing just absolute tailwinds for climate and for venture, given the hotness of markets right now. So I think more capital will continue to come into this space, which is a good and a bad thing. We will also see, I think, more consolidation. And uh, we've written about this recently. There are some later stage ag tech companies and some ag tech funds who are looking at the clock saying, where are those exits? And I expect we'll see some consolidation from existing later stage ag tech players buying early. So I think that will continue to happen. We've seen it this year as well. And I think the things we're seeing now, carbon sustainability will continue to happen. I also think like if I had another C, it might be controversy. I think ag is so uniquely placed in terms of being a culprit around climate change, but also being a possible solution. Like we didn't talk about methane today and how that plays a role. We didn't talk about a lot of the like documentary type interest coming into ag, like regenerative ag, seaspiracy, like it's sort of mainstream in some ways. And I think pretty interesting for those of us in this space going like, don't make it black and white. There's so much nuance here that we need to embrace. But I think that will continue to happen into next year for sure. Here, here for the plea for nuance. I totally agree with that. For Jeanette, she sees these 2021 trends continuing to play themselves out here in 2022, but also says she's keeping an eye on some emerging consumer trends that could play a bigger role in ag in future years. I mean, I'm curious to see in, in the next year how carbon evolves, how fintech evolves, how this whole space around supply chain evolves and what technology comes there. You know, here's the thing. I follow way too many just tech nerds on Twitter that are all talking about Web3 and NFTs and the metaverse and all these words that seem really annoying because I don't fully understand them. But I do think consumer facing trends tend to trickle into B2B eventually. So I'm just curious to see how some of those early technologies play out in the non-ag realm over the next few years, since that's probably a decent indicator of some things that could impact ag down the road. Last but certainly not least, Mark says he doesn't think we're all moving into the metaverse here yet in 2022, but wonders if we might be talking a year from now about successful ag tech exits and maybe a more challenging road for alternative proteins. I do hope 2022 is the year we start seeing some very significant, not just SPACs, but IPOs in the agri-tech space. My reaction is like, if not in this market, when? 
So I hope that some of these larger, well-funded, older agri-tech giants take that leap and go public and subject themselves to that scrutiny and withstand it. I think that's my big hope. And I guess my big question is, I wonder if 2022 is going to be the year that alt protein stumbles or just continues to stride. And I don't really have an answer to that. Alt protein is a weird thing in India, not as relevant in our market, but it's something that I'm vaguely obsessed with because, again... I'm worried that it's the road to perdition to even more monopolized control of our food supply, which is not probably what you hear most people complain about it as. And I worry about small producers. So those are my predictions and thoughts and fears. Okay, leaving you on a bit of a cliffhanger there with some thought-provoking comments from Mark. Thank you to all four of you, Francisco, Sarah, Jeanette, and Mark, for joining me for the AgTech VC Roundtable. I'll make sure I provide all of their links in the show notes for their websites and Twitter accounts and all of that. And if you want to watch the full 90-minute roundtable discussion that these highlights were pulled from, that's going to be available to members of the FOA community. You can join that over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. What are your 2021 reflections and or 2022 predictions? I'd love to know. You can tweet me. I'm at Tim Hamrich or email me anytime, tim at aggrad.com. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I never take it for granted. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Innovation.